You're probably familiar with Maurice Sendak's books like Where the Wild Things Are or Outside Over There. But do you remember reading In the Night Kitchen? I'm Lisa DeSaro, and just over 10 years after the prolific author's passing, we're returning to his 1970 dreamscape of a picture book. In the Night Kitchen offers a dazzling portrait of creativity and the expansive imaginations of children contending with an adult world. It remains one of Sendak's most celebrated books. So what's all the ruckus about? There is nothing else like it. Like you cannot, you cannot compare it to anything else. That's Sergio Rosier, author of I Can Read Comics Books, Fish and Sun and Fish and Wave. He's also the illustrator of Ruth Krauss's posthumously published Roar Like a Dandelion. You see the reference, the visual references, the cultural references in Maurice's work, especially in that book, you know, American pop culture. You see Little Nemo, you see Oliver Hardy. Nothing is off limits in Sendak's world. In In the Night Kitchen, we find images evoking everything from the early Hollywood comedy duo Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy to Windsor McKay's early 20th century comic strip Little Nemo. He even alludes to the darker themes, including the Holocaust. And I think that's what amazes me, that every time you look at the spread, you go like, oh my God, that's, I mean, I've seen it 20 times and I never noticed this particular element in that context. So I think it's one of those books that are always alive. The stunning and reference-heavy illustration is something that strikes Antoinette Portis, author of Not a Box, Not a Stick, A Penguin Story, and others. Even as a kid, I was just like, this guy is amazing. He is a genius. I want to illustrate books when I grow up because he's incredible. I mean, looking at it as an adult, you can see that Maurice is like synthesizing all his influences, you know, his childhood joys, you know, Mickey Mouse cartoons and pop art, like advertising slogans. It may, in fact, have been an advertisement that sparked the initial idea for the book. The thing I read, he said that the one of the, the genesis of the book was some advertising slogan that said, while you sleep, we bake. And he said that as a kid, he wanted to see the baking. Like, that just sounded so amazing to him. And he's like, he had to go to bed while grown-ups were having all the fun. It seemed incredibly unfair to him, which I remember from my childhood, too. Like, your parents are having a party, and you're kind of hanging around at the party, and then your parents go, go to bed. And you're like, why do I have to go to bed? I'm a person, you're people. That's probably why the story begins like this. Did you ever hear of Mickey, how he heard a rocket in the night and shouted quiet down there and fell through the dark out of his clothes, past the moon and his mama and papa sleeping tight into the light of the night kitchen? We meet Mickey, our protagonist, in bed, and the bed, too, is recognizable. It's like exactly the same bed as Little Nemo in Slumberland, you know, that little bed with the plane hanging over it. Mickey's bed is the very same that punctuates each of Little Nemo's dream adventures. And it's where we find Nemo awake at the end of each story. This is where Mickey's story begins. And this kid has a dream and, you know, these giant creepy bakers are trying to they tell him he's milk and they want to bake him. And he just smilingly charges off and solves the problem. 
And it has that kind of crazy dream logic. Those giant, creepy bakers bear a striking resemblance to the round-faced, toothbrush-mustached Oliver Hardy, baking Mickey into a cake, all of them chanting. Milk in the batter, milk in the batter, stir it, make it, scrape it, bake it. And they put the batter up to bake a delicious Mickey cake. The kid solves the problem and then snuggles back into bed and, you know, yum, because he's going to have cake in the morning. And I thought, it's unfortunate that Americans are so resistant to the naked thing, because children love being naked. This is where things get tricky. It's no secret that In the Night Kitchen received a lot of criticism for one small detail. It happens early on in the book, when Mickey falls asleep and right out of his clothes, which is how Mickey stays for much of the book. Maurice was famously frustrated by the controversy over Mickey's nudity. In a 2009 episode of Fresh Air, NPR's Terry Gross revisited her 1986 interview with Maurice. He told her that he didn't see any sense in all the drama. It's fine to see a nude image of young Christ at the Met, or the Frick, he said. Why is a book for children any different? Yeah, so, yeah, let's, let's talk about penises. It's crazy that it's even an issue. Also, here we're talking about the 1970s during, you know, the, the sexual revolution, and still there were people in important positions, like in libraries, in schools' libraries, who would censor something like that. Maurice was getting at something important in that interview, something about a distinction between the art of children's literature and what we might call fine art. Whether such a distinction is necessary may be up for debate, but it seems Maurice felt it wasn't, and Sergio doesn't blame him. Maurice was saying, also, come on, we go to museums and we see hundreds of penises in one hour of, you know, Jesus penises or, or angels penises. And now we see a little, a little wee-wee of a little kid that doesn't have anything to do with the story. It's just they're naked. It needs to be naked. And when you're naked, if you're a boy, you're going to show your penis most likely. So there is nothing wrong with it. And besides... It's only natural that a child would enter a dream in his most natural state. Maurice told Terry Gross in the same interview, quote, I didn't set out to cause a scandal. I set out to do a very particular work where he had to be naked in order to confront a particular dream he was in. You don't go into a dream wearing Fruit of the Loom underwear or PJs, unquote. But after In the Night Kitchen came out, it became the center of discussions about censorship over the next several decades. Should the book be in schools, some parents and librarians would ask? Maybe we could just cut that bit out of the book, some would suggest, or at least paint Mickey some pants or a diaper. Dismayed at the public response, Maurice said to Gross, quote, It was idiocy. It was incredible idiocy what went on over that book for many, many years about Mickey being naked, unquote. Sergio had a similar, though more minor, incident of his own when he contributed his own fourth grade drawing to an anthology compiled by John Cheska. The drawing was of a monster, and the monster had a penis. Anyway, when that book was published, there was a, a, a school librarian who still said, oh, the book is good. And I, unfortunately, I had to erase a penis with my marker, which is like 
But you're calling for attention. If you underline, you're underlining the things that you that you want to hide. It, it's not going to work. It's it's actually funny. I I don't mind these things. I'm not offended when people do that. I just think it's crazy and it, it's going to go against their will. Practically, it's going to backfire. While the controversy was focused on what children should or should not see, Antoinette reminds us that Maurice was never just a children's author. And I know he felt resistant to being consigned to the kiddie book realm, is how he said it, you know. And I mean, now at least it's kid lit, like lit, like literature, like that's a step up. But he really felt insulted that people called his books kiddie books because he's like, I make book for humans. And if children like them, that's great. But I'm not, you know, condescending to them. That's probably why adults and children alike pick up on the emotional complexity of Sendak's work. At least, Sergio did. I grew up with the Little Bear series. Those are the books that I had as a kid in the Italian translation. I remember Maurice telling me about it. He said he was so pleased with that, with that edition. Illustrated by Sendak and written by Elsa Homeland Minarek, the Little Bear books were a household name since their introduction in the late 50s. I learned how to read on those books. I love those stories, but also I, I, I learned how to read pictures on those books. The story of the, of the, um, the Bordet <laughs> Soup was, was really my favorite. There was something both comforting and melancholy in the images that attracted Sergio to them, he says a tenderness he couldn't quite understand. I couldn't name these things, but when I was a little, when I was a little one, when I was a six-year-old, five-year-old, I would look at these drawings and feel something strong. And, and it stayed with me for until now. Like those, those books still give me the, the, the goosebumps when I, when I read them. For example, when a little bear carries the soup to, to the table where his friends are waiting, uh, to eat his birthday soup. There is something a little sad, and but he's still gonna do what he has to do, even though he's sad because his mother is not around and he doesn't know why, but he's there and he, and he keeps doing what he should do for, for his friends. Sergio was already a big fan of Maurice's when he received an invitation to Connecticut from the Sendak Fellowship. It was such a, a strange thing that happened because I grew up with Little Bear. Then when I became uh, an adult, a professional illustrator. I learned about his book and I learned all, all the things that he did and he became really passionate and, and really a big admirer of, of Maurice's books. So think about me in that situation and at a certain point I received a, a letter in the mailbox with an invitation to go stay in Connecticut by his house for a month. He could hardly believe it. He thought maybe he had misunderstood at first, but he hadn't. My first reaction was like, oh, no, I cannot do that. And it's like, oh, wait a second, maybe I can do it. There is nothing that stops me from doing it. And I, and I did. Sergio was part of the second ever class of Sendak Fellows. And we were told that we didn't have any obligations. We were just, practically, he would just give us a space and a time where we could just do whatever we wanted. If we didn't feel like drawing, we didn't have to draw. He was not asking anything in exchange for that space, for that time, for that peace of mind that he was giving us. That was the idea. To illustrators who might be either starting or struggling or in a crisis or anything, like illustrators, visual storytellers who 
could use some space, a space to, to, to be and to communicate with the other fellows and particularly with, with him, with Maurice, which was really, he didn't want to impose. He was saying, of course, we wanted him to impose on us and our time and everything. The fellowship would allow illustrators like Sergio and Antoinette a space for creative exploration. They would have absolute freedom. Antoinette had also been selected for the fellowship's inaugural class in 2010. What was so cool is Maurice would come out and just talk to us because he was like, he wanted this thing to happen for so long. And he was so wanting to pass on his knowledge. And I mean, in a way, he wanted us to be activists, you know, to sort of bring back the golden age of picture book making. He wanted to pass the torch of this idealism about, you know, picture books being literature, not products. Maurice understood the importance of books that spoke to true human experience. His books never failed to express the largeness of life in all its depth and strangeness. In his later years, he sometimes expressed frustration with an approach to children's literature that he seemed to feel treated childhood as something to be marketed. Of course, Maurice believed childhood was difficult, something to be survived, he told NPR in an interview in 1993. You know, he's like, you need to make books that matter, that talk to children about what it's like to be a human being on planet Earth. And not that you can't be silly, because I mean, I look at the Nutshell Library and it's just so fun and fanciful and playful. But he always is connecting to something elemental about childhood and reflecting back to children who they are and what they're about, which is kind of what Not a Box was for me is I'm not showing children how to be imaginative. I'm reflecting back to them their own imagination and acknowledging the power of it so that they feel gotten. Like, yeah, know what you guys are up to. Antoinette's books, Not a Box and Not a Stick, are a celebration of the imaginative lives of children. Not a Box features a particularly inventive bunny who finds infinite possibilities in a regular cardboard box. I asked her how she came up with the idea for the book. I was in a writing class with Barbara Botner, and I'd written this book that I thought was really clever. And in the first class, Barbara looked at the manuscript and she said, no. And I was like, what? I'm so clever. And her advice was, her advice to all her students was, to look back at your childhood, find an age that you really connect with, you know, whether that's your teenager or you're two years old. Or f- and for me, it was sort of like five, five-ish, four, five, six. And I looked back at my childhood and went, what was my favorite thing? And it was like using my imagination and creating entire worlds in my mind that I could then entertain myself in. So if nothing was going on, you know, you're tired of playing life with your brother who cheats, and you just want to play. And I actually was at my mom's house, washing dishes, looking out the window where we made, my brother and I made a train out of cardboard boxes. And I remember how excited we were that we created this thing. And our driveway was like a train track. It was long. And then there was the garage at the end. And like we took tin can lids and made them the headlights of the train. You know, I thought, we're geniuses. Oh my God. And You are in a train, just wailing along a mountain road, and it's so real, and that's power. It is power, and kids have zero power. You can't go where you wanna go, you can't do what you wanna do. 
want to do, you can't buy anything, you can't, but what you can do is imagine. And those are my best experiences of my childhood with the neighborhood kids. So I wanted to write about that. And one reviewer said, she's showing children how to use their imaginations. And I was like, no, they're showing us how to use our imagination. Antoinette's good at practicing what she preaches. She always tries to incorporate chance into her work, she says. And I always liked incorporating chance into the work and letting sort of happenstance, and sometimes it's probably your unconscious mind, kind of direct things and incorporating accident into it and making it work. In one of her books, Hey Water, she found joy in a kind of childlike play. Hey Water, I painted with big brushes with Sumi ink, and it's very, you know, it wasn't about control. It was about marks. And I did events with kids where, you know, we'd cover these long tables with plastic, and then I would give them these dishes of Sumi ink and big fat brushes to paint with. And there was like a nine-month-old just like painting these giant marks, like an abstract expressionist, like Morris Lewis or something. And the power of just making these bold marks and not trying to make something perfect. Sergio's approach to illustration is a bit different. One of his artistic heroes is the enigmatic Hieronymus Bosch. His otherworldly influence is one you might be able to see for yourself in Sergio's work. Bosch was really one of my heroes when I was a kid. In my uh, in my home, there were a good a good amount of art books that my father had. But if if you look at the spines of all these books in his library, the only one that is a little damaged is is the Bosch book because I would go and take it and read it, even though he was afraid that I would damage his books, and I did damage his Bosch, but. I'm glad that I did because I learned so much looking at the book over and over. All those details, crazy things that he was doing. Sergio was inspired by narrative art for a long time, and he knew as an adult that he wanted to make it. But he was struggling to find his place in the publishing world. I wanted to tell stories with my drawings. That was my main goal. And so I wanted to do children's books. And then I would go to publishers to show my work, but I would get not really enthusiastic reactions at first. And maybe there was also a mistake on my part. In my portfolio would have drawings that I did for myself, not necessarily for the children's book market. But I was a little frustrated as I, oh, someone really told me, oh no, your work is absolutely not right for children's publishing. You know, you can can do other things, but not children's books. But then Sergio would go to bookstores and see the work of authors who felt more aligned with his style. Artists like Peter Cease, who by the mid-90s already had an impressive catalog of beautifully illustrated award-winning books. And I said, but they do publish weird things as well. So I said, okay, who publishes this thing? And so I called Peter Cease from a phone booth in Union Square. And I said, look, I'm an Italian illustrator. I see that you're publishing great books. Can I come see you and show you my work? And he said yes. I went to see Peter Cease in his studio on Elizabeth Street, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, my editor, Frances Foster, will like your work. So he sent me to her, and she was also such a great person. It's so, it's so sad that she's gone so, so early. And she was wonderful, and she was funny, and we became friends, and, and she started to, to publish my work. And Sergio has been giving us access to his vibrant and original imagination ever since. 
In 2021, he gave us Fish and Son, his first in the I Can Read comics series. The idea for the book came from a moment of pure playfulness, the perfect origin for a story about overcoming boredom. It came from, from a drawing that I did many years ago. It was actually a specific fish, was a sole, you know, the sole, the flat fishes. Sole is written S-O-L-E, and that in Italian means sole, which is the sun. So I did this drawing with sun and and the, the sole and the, and the sole, right? So the fish and the sun. And, uh, and it was just a, a little visual pun. Um, I don't know how to call it, but, but I found it interesting. In Fish and Son, Fish is totally bored one morning. He complains to his mother that there's just nothing to do. So he swims up to the surface where he makes friends with Son. I mean, boredom was one of the big things in my childhood, at least. How to fight boredom, like you don't want to be bored, you want to do something. The book provides an accessible, empathetic look at childhood boredom. Writing for such new readers, of course, has its challenges. In the second book in the series, Fish and Wave, Fish meets a friendly little wave who, to Fish's surprise, becomes a much bigger wave. It may be about confronting the fear that comes with new experiences. But Sergio never suggests a correct way to respond to fear or overcome it. He didn't want to write a story that was overly didactic. Like, you have to be clear, but you still want to leave something so that the kid can interpret the way they want. You know, I don't like usually stories that tell you everything, <laughs> that explain everything. And I like to, to leave a little bit more uh, questions not answered or things that are even morally ambiguous so that the kid can make their own mind on what is happening. Like Maurice, Sergio felt it important not to condescend to children, to tell them how to be or what to think. His third book in the series is his most ambiguous and maybe the most challenging yet. I'm working now on the third book. It's Fish and Worm. Actually, I just delivered it. I just finished it. And I think it's the darkest one of the three because it's there is this moral dilemma. This fish meets his food and he plays with the food. You're not supposed to play with your food, but he does. And But then the mother says, you have to eat it. You have to eat your food. But now they're friends. What is going to do? Elsewhere... Sergio's projects are even more open to interpretation. He was recently invited to illustrate a manuscript by the one and only late Ruth Krauss, a powerhouse in children's literature and sometime collaborator with Maurice himself. The book is called Roar Like a Dandelion. When Sergio received the manuscript, he was in heaven. Made up of one-line directives in alphabetical order, the book reads like a playbook against boredom. It invites readers, Sergio says, to imagine their own interpretations of every line, each of them telling a different story. Sergio's Wonderland-like illustrations help us visualize some of the possibilities. Probably my favorite line. It's a little bit more descriptive, but still, you know, you can have so much fun in creating the situation, the characters, the, the composition. And it's paint a picture of a cage with an open door and wait. And I really had a good time working on this one. And in, my, in the back of my mind, there was that etching by, by Goya about the sleep of reason. 
with the monsters that arrive while the, the person is sleeping. In Sergio's illustration, we see a cage painted on a wall and several fantastically large birds flying toward it, not unlike Francisco Goya's winged monsters. A mouse is napping close by with his paintbrush, waiting. But there are lines that offer a little less description, like, vote for yourself, or X out all the bad stuff. That's the great fun of Roar Like a Dandelion. It's endless possibility. And that possibility extends beyond mental stimulation. The book was translated in, into Italian. Actually, I did the translation, was published here. And uh, I know at least one uh, dance, dancing school for kids used the text. And it's such, those are great prompts for, how do you call the, the dance that you do in, without thinking, to, without preparing it? Uh, well, improvisation, improv, yeah. Improvisation, you know, improvisation dance. Okay, there is this hint, this this prompt, do what your body tells you to do when you hear this. What better antidote to boredom than dancing? Antoinette's 2008 book, A Penguin Story, elevates the boredom theme. The story follows Edna, a penguin tired of the limited color palette that defines her daily life. If I was living in Antarctica, where it's just snowy and white all the time, what I would miss is color. Like, she does not live in a world of color. And color is so important to me. And I thought I would just shrivel up and die if I didn't have color. So Edna doesn't even know what color is because she's never seen the whole rainbow. And then I was driving in my car and I heard a woman talking about Rumi the poet. And she said... Wow, I think longing is the most beautiful human emotion there is. And I was like, okay, I got a penguin and she's longing for color. How do those two things mesh? And I also, it's like, it is really fun as an adult to have an idea like that where you want to write about longing and then find a silly, goofy way to do it where, you know, I mean, like Edna's on a spiritual search for meaning in the universe, which color is a metaphor for, but... You don't have to know that. It's just about curiosity or about boredom and solving your boredom problem. Edna does eventually find the color she's looking for. When Antoinette inscribes the book for readers, she writes, Never stop looking. Antoinette is still looking too, even in In the Night Kitchen. I read something. Maurice was being interviewed and he said, well, I think... In the Night Kitchen is a deeper book than Where the Wild Things Are. It's got more me in it. And I was like, whoa, blowing my mind. Because I don't really understand all that he's doing there. Like, Mickey is being taken as milk. And these big, jolly, but dangerous bakers who are slightly forbidding want to make him into a cake. But he isn't milk. And he has to escape, but he's not scared. He's not worried. He just joyfully makes a plane out of dough and flies off to get what they need so they don't have to use him in their sacrificial cake. This is when Mickey breaks free from the cake batter, narrowly escaping being baked in a brightly colored oven. Despite the fact that the image may be evocative of the Holocaust to some adult readers, Mickey manages to escape. He jumps courageously into some bread dough, shapes it into an airplane around him, and begins to fly off and away. 
Then Mickey was just on his way when the bakers ran up with a measuring cup howling, Milk, milk, milk for the morning cake. Mickey flies his dough plane up over the Milky Way and into a giant milk bottle where he swims to the bottom to get milk for the batter. Then he swam up to the top, pouring milk from his cup into the batter below. So the bakers mixed it and beat it and baked it. And again, the bakers chant. Milk in the batter, milk in the batter. We bake cake and nothing's the matter. I mean, it's like hearing somebody else's dream and you don't know what it means, but it's intriguing and you know there's a lot there that you could figure out. And on the other hand, you look at it, it's just like a Mickey Mouse cartoon, like just this completely joyful romp. Like the hero has this dangerous situation he has to escape from and he does in this really creative and funny way. And it's just pure entertainment. Antoinette just knows there's more beneath the surface to be uncovered. As we wound down to the end of our interview, I asked Antoinette what she hopes readers continue to take from her books. And after the interview, she wrote to me. She says she hopes that kids and grown-ups see that staying open and being curious can bring wonderful new experiences into your life. Kids are naturally curious about the world around them, she tells me, but grown-ups can settle in and forget. She doesn't have any illusion that she can change the world with a picture book, she says. But in her books, she is always aiming to honor a quality that feels important to human experience. That's the point of it all, anyway. I think we could say the same of Maurice. His books are ambitious, complex, and treat the inner lives of children with a seriousness often reserved for a strictly adult readership. But that comes with the territory. He was serious about the work. He's just the greatest children's bookmaker of all time. I mean, you just can't. I mean, first of all, the man was a brilliant artist. You know, I mean, he was he always compared himself to Rembrandt and felt like a failure. And it's like, dude, come on. Authors like Antoinette and Sergio and Maurice are every bit as much artists in their own right, Rembrandt or not. Maybe some will continue to remember in the night kitchen for a benign image of a naked child, but most will probably remember it for Mickey's boldness or for its vision of the imagination and all its perfect wildness. When Maurice told NPR in 1993 that childhood was a matter of survival, he may have been speaking largely of his own experience, but he gets at something universal. Even if what must be survived is just utter boredom or having to go to bed while the grown-ups stay up partying, it is real and urgent. Maybe that's why as children we define our agency in imaginative play and in dreams, in spite of an adult world with adult rules and motivations. Even if it's all to have cake in the morning. Tell us what you think on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins. Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Julie Yader, Elba Luz, Tony Marquis, Megan Ilnitsky, Andrew Arnold, Luana Hori, and Kate O'Sullivan. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Lisa DeSaro. 
Thanks for listening. <laughs>